Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking for your grace to be with us. Lord, here we are again having to do another Zoom service. And Lord, at the beginning of the new year, and yet, Father, we know that we do not need to be filled with discouragement or despair because you are faithful and you always provide a means for your word to go out and to do its work. And Lord, I pray that your word that is about to be spoken right here, right now, will indeed do its work. Will you minister to us and encourage us, empower us by your grace so that in spite of all the circumstances we find ourselves in, all the trials and tribulations, the troubles that we must face, we can face with the certainty that our God is faithful and he will give us the strength to face whatever it is that you have decreed that we must. Father, help us to not cower away in fear and to not give in to temptation. Lord, be with us now as we sit at your feet to hear your word and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So a few years ago, I was watching the evening news, and they showed a video of a young six-year-old African child, a girl, cooking food over an open fire. And the thing that was so startling about this little girl were her eyes. There was something that was completely off about them. You see, the way that she was looking at the camera made it look as if her eyes belonged inside the head of a 60-year-old person rather than a six-year-old child. It just looked like she saw way more than a six-year lifespan would permit. And when you consider what she was not doing at the moment, playing with dolls, coloring, and drawing, you know, typical things that six-year-olds do, but instead cooking food over an open fire, presumably for a starving family, the point was pretty obvious. And that is, suffering forces you to put away childish things. Suffering forces you to put away childish things. And of course, this is something that we all know. We know that when children go through such terrible trauma, some overwhelming situation, some horrific horrors, they no longer have the luxury to be children anymore. They're forced to grow up and to put away childish things. No more playing with childish toys. No more listening to childish stories. No more believing in childish characters. The Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, Santa Claus. Huh? As children are forced to say hello to the bitter hardships of life, they're also forced to say goodbye to some of the most cherished beliefs that gave them so much hope and joy into their hearts. And sad to say, tragically, one common belief that they say goodbye to is their belief in God. And this tragedy explains the growing trend that we see so often today to where as people get older and older, their faith in God gets weaker and weaker to the point of it being non-existent. A couple years ago, I came across an article that describes this very trend that I'm speaking of. Take a listen to this article from The Guardian entitled Elderly, Elderly Lose Faith in Religion. It starts off this way, quote, Older people are losing faith in God as they age. New research confirming the trend will shock Britain's crisis-hit churches, which until now have regarded the elderly as the enduring backbone of their dwindling congregation. As I get older, I've had a few health problems and now think more about death, said 60-year-old David Terry, a retired college principal from Worcester. It now seems intellectually preposterous to me to maintain that there is a personal God who can alter actions as a result of prayer, end quote. As more and, people, more and more people get older, the more they find themselves unable to have faith in God for the same reason that children lose their faith in God, because of incredible suffering. Whether you're talking about the suffering of a pandemic, 
the suffering of unforeseen tragedies, or even the sufferings of the normal wear and tear in life, more and more people are getting so overwhelmed, so exhausted, so tired, that belief in God becomes more and more unbelievable. And if you're here today struggling with that kind of situation, then you need to pay special attention to today's message. And even for those of you who are not, I want you to pay special attention because inevitably, as you go through the sufferings and sorrows of life, you will be tempted to turn out this way. And so, in order to prevent that or to recover from that, let's consider Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, where the author, King Solomon, is going to show us how we can overcome the growing disbelief that comes as a result of increased suffering. And he's going to tell us that it comes through having childlike faith. Childlike faith. Well, what exactly does that mean to have childlike faith? Well, as we consider what we study today, Solomon is going to tell us that childlike faith requires us to recognize three things, and they are as follows. First, we must recognize why believing God as a youth is necessary. Secondly, we must recognize why growing old sucks. And finally, he's going to end it with why death is the only thing that matters. The three things that we must recognize, if we are to have childlike faith, is that we must understand why believing God as a youth is necessary, why growing old sucks, and why death is the only thing that matters. Let's begin now with the first point, why believing God as a youth is necessary. Read again with me just the first half of verse 1, where we read, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. Okay, pause it right there, your attention, please. Here Solomon is identifying for us the kind of child whose faith that we are to follow the example of. And that is a child that is very, very, very young, almost toddler-like young. And how do I know that? Because of that phrase that we just came across, before the evil days come. Let me explain. You know, children today are much more protected from the tragedies of life than children in the days of the Bible. With advancement in medicine, technology, and with now the prevalence of stable governments everywhere, children today don't have to face evil days until much later on in life. But that wasn't the case for children who lived during the days of Solomon, with diseases running rampant, with conquering armies everywhere, and even the normal everyday occurrences like women giving birth to children had the high probability of death right around the corner, you see? Evil days came much sooner in the lives of children in the days of the Bible than children today. And so when Solomon speaks of a youth who has not yet seen evil days, he's obviously referring to a child that's very, very very young. And when you realize this, you come to understand what Solomon is telling us. He's telling us that if we want childlike faith, we must have, we must have the faith of a very young kid, almost toddler-like. You know, during that time when you thought God was everything, the most important person of all, before any suffering came into your life that caused you to question any of that, right? That's what he's saying that we are to do. Now, some of you are going to hear this and you'll be somewhat disturbed by what Solomon is saying because on the surface, it seems Solomon is encouraging us to be a bunch of gullible and naive people that gets easily brainwashed. I mean, after all, isn't that what atheists claim they hate so much about institutional religion, indoctrination? I remember a few years ago, the atheist Richard Dawkins once stated that it's immoral to teach young children religion. Why? Because they don't have the critical skills necessary to think for themselves, thereby making them susceptible to believe any ridiculous things, whether you're talking about the flying spaghetti monster or the God of the Bible. And maybe, just maybe, you share in Dawkins' sentiment. 
Maybe you feel it's not right for children to be exposed to that kind of belief system. After all, children are susceptible to believing anything that any authority figure will tell them to believe. And so when Solomon is telling us to believe like that kind of child, it almost comes across as if he's being somewhat manipulative or malicious. But if that's how you're thinking, I gotta tell you right now, you are wrong. Because as far as Solomon is concerned, there are very two good reasons as to why he tells us to have faith like this. Let's go through them. Reason number one is simple. Faith in God is not the result of scientific or critical thinking. Let me say that again. Faith in God is not the result of critical or scientific thinking. You see, by telling us to have faith like a child, Solomon is telling us that belief in God doesn't require you to get a PhD, to read a stack of books, or to have a philosophical state of thinking. No. You see, God is not a Harvard degree where only a privileged few have access to. God makes himself readily accessible and available to anyone, to everyone, no matter who they are, no matter how old they are, to where his existence would be so obvious that even little children would grasp this. And this is something that I feel we really need to grasp in the church because I fear that so often, so many of us Christians, we feel that we can't be confident in our belief in God until we obtain a certain level of inscrutable certainty of his existence. But consider these very profound and poetic words from theologian Abraham Heschel as he shares on this matter. He says this, quote, speculation does not precede faith. The antecedents of faith are the premise of wonder and the premise of praise. Worship of God precedes affirmation of his realness. We praise before we prove. We respond before we question. Proofs for the existence of God may add strength to our belief. They do not generate it. Human existence implies the realness of God. There is a certainty without knowledge in the depth of our being that accounts for our asking the ultimate questions. A preconceptual certainty that lies beyond all formulations or verbalizations, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying God is so instinctively real, so intuitively true, that believing in him is self-justifying, okay? What Solomon wants us to recognize is that God made himself so obvious that even a child who's not capable of getting a PhD, who's not capable of reading a stack of books, who's not capable of philosophizing, is still able to know what is obvious, God is real, God is there, he exists, and we are to believe in him. So that is the first reason Solomon says we'd have to childlike faith, because God obviously exists, he's obviously real, and we are to have faith in him, obviously. But that's not all. There's a second reason Solomon says that we are to have this childlike faith, and it all centers on that phrase, before the coming of evil days. You know, it's been said that there are no such thing as atheists in foxholes. And what that statement is trying to say is that no matter who a person is or what they claim about faith and spirituality, when they're in a real desperate situation, where they're in real despair and real trauma, they're gonna be open-minded to anything, including the belief in God. I mean, just go to any alcohol anonymous meeting in the city anywhere, okay? There you'll be surrounded by people who are just so ready to be set free from their alcoholism that they're finally open to the existence of a higher power, which they weren't before they hit rock bottom. You see, we know that when people go through tremendous despair, tremendous difficulty, they become so desperate to the point that they're willing to be open to the idea of God. 
And indeed, we've seen this happen in our own generation, did we not? I still remember to this day what happened before 9-11 happened and what occurred after 9-11. And I'm sure many of you do too, specifically with regard to spirituality. People who on September 10th didn't give a rip about God after September 11th were much more interested in the concept of God, where churches everywhere in this country, even in our city, were filled to max capacity and then some. In the midst of such terrible tragedy, people sought solace and security in the face of terrorism on U.S. soil. And as a result, praise God, many people did find God. God did use that horrific moment in our nation's history to draw many people to himself. And that's a wonderful thing. But here's a potential problem with that. The Bible tells us that it's possible for a person to delude themselves into thinking that they have genuine faith in God as a result of some tragedy. But in reality, when you dig deep into that faith, it turns out to be nothing more than a fair weather faith. A fair weather faith? Yes, a fair weather faith. Now, you might be asking, one, the world's a fair weather faith. Well, do you guys know what a fair weather friend is? A fair weather friend? It's a friend who only wants to be your friend because you have something that they want or something that they need. That's a fair weather friend. In other words, they only want you not to have you, but something that you can give to them. But the moment you stop providing what they need or the moment they no longer need it from you, they no longer want to be your friend. And sadly, many people use God this way. As they go through some trauma, as they go through some tragedy, they seek out solace from God in the form of maybe saying wanting relationship in the face of loneliness, of wanting healing in the midst of sickness, in the, in, in the wanting of prosperity in, in, in seasons of poverty, right? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with seeking after God for needs that you might have as a result of tragedy. But when you make these things to be preconditions on whether or not you will believe in God, follow God, be a worshiper of God, there's something seriously wrong with that. And that's Solomon's point when he says that we are to have childlike faith, the kind of faith that is this before the coming of evil days, because that's the kind of faith that's genuine. That's the kind of faith that wants God for the sake of God himself, not what God can give to you as a result of you going through trauma and ter terrible days, you see? So when we put all this together, what is the first thing that we must recognize if we want childlike faith? It must be a faith that recognizes that God is obviously real. And secondly, it must be a faith that wants God, genuinely wants God for God himself and not what he can give to us as a result of us going through some terrible tragedy, okay? So now let's move on to the second thing we must recognize if we are to have childlike faith. And to do so, I go to my next point, why getting old sucks. You know, when I became a Christian in college, I still remember the first thing that I felt I needed to do as a recent convert to Christianity. And that is, I felt like I needed to go back and convert all of my high school friends. And that's exactly what I did. Correction, that's what I attempted to do with zero success. I still remember to this day sitting in my best friend's living room on his couch where I just kept going on and on about the importance of God and Jesus and why he needed to, to, to make God a priority in his life. And after hearing me for about five minutes, out of nowhere, he just blew up. He said, dude, John, enough, all right? Will you just quit it? I don't wanna hear any more about your faith, about your religion, about your God. And then he looked at me straight in the eye and he says, I don't need your God. I don't want your God. And when I responded with the question of why he would say such a thing, you know what he did? He started cataloging 
all the things in his life that made it so great. I have a beautiful girlfriend who can cook awesome food. I have an awesome car that I've always wanted that I can now drive. I have money in my pocket, money in the bank. I have a job where I'm doing well. I'm getting promotion upon promotion above my peers. In other words, for him, life was good. You see, for my friend, his life had enough pleasure, adventure, and mystery to where it didn't require any other justification, including my God. And if you're here today investigating Christianity, or if you're struggling to take your faith more seriously, maybe you think like my friend did. You may be thinking that God doesn't really offer you anything unique, anything special to where he would stand out as a priority for you. Especially when you consider all the things that this world has to offer to you that make you feel special, significant, and satisfied. But let's consider what Solomon says in our passage again with regard to all of that. Starting in verse 1, we read, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dim and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desires fail. Come on back. You know, whenever I read these verses, it kind of reminds me of when I listen to a beautiful, sappy K-pop song. It sounds beautiful, but I have no idea what it's saying. But it turns out I'm not the only one. Because amongst Old Testament scholars, there's quite a disagreement amongst them in terms of exactly what Solomon is trying to say with these beautiful poetic words. And yet, there's still enough agreement amongst them to where there's still consensus in terms of the gist of what Solomon is saying. And you know what that is? Solomon is basically saying here that getting old sucks. <laughs> so for consider for a moment, uh, theologian Warren Wiersbe, as he explains his interpretation of these verse, so you'll see what I mean. It's, he said this, quote, Keepers of the house, verse 3, refers to your arms and hands trembling. Strong man, verse 3, refers to your legs, your knees, and your shoulders weakening as you walk bent over. Grinders, verse 3, refers to you losing your teeth. Verse 3 of windows refers to your visions beginning to deteriorate. Doors of verse 4, uh, either your hearing starts to fail or you're closed your mouth because you've lost all your teeth. Grinding refers to you not being able to chew your food or your ears not able to pick up the sounds of the outdoors. Rising up of verse 4 means that you wake up early with the birds even though you wish you could sleep longer. Verse 4, that refers to the song, means that your voice starts to quiver and weaken. Being afraid of verse 5 is referring to you being terrified of heights and afraid of falling while you walk down the street. The almond tree of verse 5 refers to your hair, if you have any left, turning white like the almond blossoms. The grasshopper references you dragging yourself along like a grasshopper does at the close of the summer season. And finally, verse 5, with the reference of desire, is you losing your appetite, perhaps your sexual desire. Now, when you realize all of this is what Solomon is getting at in these verses of 3 to 5, you come to see his point. And that is, no matter what great pleasures you get to enjoy in life, no matter what great adventures you get to go on in life, no matter what great mystery you get enchanted with in life, the fact of the matter is, all of that changes as you get older because life just begins to suck. Or if I could put it another way, as you get older, 
all the pleasures that you once enjoyed eventually become painful. All the adventures you love going on eventually become annoying. All the mystery that you were enchanted with soon become mundane and boring. To where eventually you end up saying what Solomon does at the end of verse 1. I have no pleasure in them. You see, Solomon would completely disagree with my former best friend in high school. Life does not justify itself. Why? Because Solomon knew what every grumpy old person knows, and that is the longer you live this life, the more harder, the more difficult, the more miserable you get. Okay? That's what he's saying. Have you ever wondered <clears throat> why we stereotypically refer to older people as grumpy? Why do we always kind of refer to people who are well advanced in age as being grumpy people? I mean, does that make sense if what my best friend said is true, that life justifies itself, that love, life is filled with so many pleasures and adventures and mystery that you don't need anything else? I mean, if that was the case, you would think that people who live the longest on this earth, i.e. old people, would be the happiest, most hopeful, most joyful, most jovial people. And yet that is not the case. They're miserable. They're bitter. They're grumpy. Why? Solomon tells us the answer to that question in verse 5 when he says this, Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. What's he talking about here? He's talking about death. Death. And why is he talking about death? Because he's identifying the one thing that ruins everything because it literally ruins life itself. Death literally ruins life itself. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a productive life, a successful life, a well-lived life, or even a religious life. For consider what Solomon says elsewhere in Ecclesiastes 9. He says this, The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. There is nothing in this life that can minimize the bitterness of death. There is nothing in this life that can reverse that sense of pointlessness of your life due to your incoming death or because of your death. And because that is so, do you realize what that means? It means that maybe, just maybe, there is something to God after all. That maybe, just maybe, God is as important as he claims to be and that we need to recognize him as such. Specifically, we need to recognize him as our greatest need. Because according to Solomon, that's what childlike faith does. Childlike faith properly recognizes God as being the most important person, the most important priority of our lives because of the fact that he can handle what our lives cannot. He can handle death. And because he's the only one who can handle death, we should have faith in him. We should prioritize him. We should center our lives around him because of that very fact. Now, some of you guys are going to hear what I just said, and you're going to think that I just contradicted myself. You might be thinking something to the effect of, wait a minute, Pastor, didn't you just say a moment ago that childlike faith is a genuine faith, not a fair-weather faith? You know, the kind of faith where you only want God for what he can give to you? And yet you're telling me now that we are to have faith in God because he can handle what our life cannot? Death? 
In other words, you're telling us that we should uh, prioritize God because he can give to us something that we can't get for ourselves, a solution to the problem of death. How does that not make you also guilty of also having a fair weather faith in God with what you're claiming? Hey, that's a great series of questions. Let me see if I can now answer that by going to my final point. Why death is the only thing that matters. Read again one more time our passage, verses 3 to 5. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dim and the doors on the streets are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper dragged itself along <clears throat> and desires fail because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the street. So as I said a moment ago, Solomon, in referencing these verses, is talking about the terrible sufferings that happen with getting old to the point where we see that getting old sucks. But when you read these verses more carefully, you see there's an underlying message that he's trying to tell us, a message that we cannot miss. And that is the message that basically says this, death is the only thing that matters. Death is the only thing that matters. Let me explain what he means by that by using this illustration. Imagine for a moment there is a massive Category 5 tornado, the worst possible tornado of all, and you're only one mile away from it. Let me ask, are you going to be in trouble by being that far away from a tornado? Yes, of course you are. You're going to be in big trouble. You're going to be hurting a lot. But now let's change it up a bit. Instead of being a mile away from that tornado, you're 100 feet away from the tornado. Are you going to be worse off than you were just by being a mile away? Of course. Why? Because the closer you get to that tornado, the greater your misery, the greater your suffering is going to be. And Solomon says that's exactly how it is with death. Death is like a massive, dangerous tornado to where the closer you get to it, the more miserable, the more suffering, the more misery that you are going to be. Which means when you actually do die, you will be way worse off than the sufferings that you were going through before you died. I mean, think about the tornado analogy. If you're 100 feet away from the tornado, you're in big trouble. You're suffering. You're miserable, okay? But let's say you are in the tornado itself. Which situation is way worse? 100 feet away from the tornado or actually being in the tornado? No, it's being in the tornado itself. And the same idea applies when it comes to death. Okay, getting close to death is miserable. You're losing your hair, you're losing your teeth, you're losing bowel control, you're losing, you know, your overall sense of well-being. That's bad, but it's not as bad when until when you're actually dead. To be actually dead is way worse than to actually be close to death. I mean, go back to that tornado analogy. Let's say a person who's 100 feet away from the tornado is just so miserable that he says, you know what, I'm so sick of suffering like this. I'm going to go ahead and just jump right into the tornado itself. Is that kind of solution a real solution? Is that person being sensible by doing that thing? Of course not. No. And yet here's what's so crazy. So many people think this way when it comes to how they relate to their suffering to death. Some people feel that the sufferings they go through in this life, whether you're talking about emotional suffering, relational suffering, physical suffering, is so bad that they would see death as a relief from those sufferings. And the Bible says, no, no, that is not the case at all. Death is way worse than even the greatest sufferings that you can go through in this life. Why? 
because death can do what no earthly suffering can. And that is death can actually separate you from God. Let me say it again. Death can do to you what no great suffering in this life can. Death can actually separate you from God. Or as David says it in Psalm 16, verse 10, death is the means of you being abandoned by God. You see? And so when you realize all this, when you go to God, asking God to deal with your death, to handle your death, that's not you being a fair-weather Christian. That's not you using God. That's not you being selfish. You know why? Because you're asking God to get rid of the one thing that would hinder you from having God. You see? When you go to God saying something to the effect of, God, I love you. You're my greatest priority. I want you. You're the most important person in my life. Can you now handle the very thing that would prevent me from having you? Can you handle death? That's what it's all about. When you're asking God to handle death, you're not wanting God for something he can give to you. You're wanting God himself because that is what death takes away from you. Death takes away from you, God, and you want God to handle that. And indeed, that's exactly what God did. When he came into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, so he could suffer the full penalty, suffer the full punishment for all your sins, the very sins that make you worthy of being abandoned by God, that make you worthy of suffering death itself, but you won't. If you turn away from your sins and repent and make Jesus the Lord of your life, instead, you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be given life. That means you will never die. Oh, you may suffer physical death, but you will not suffer the thing that makes death so tragic, so miserable. You will not be severed. You will not be abandoned. You will not be let go by your God. You will have him for all eternity. You see? Do you see? If you do, now you have the means of understanding of how to have childlike faith. Childlike faith understands that no matter what tragedy we go through in this life, no matter what sorrows, no matter what sufferings, no matter what troubles we must endure, they're not as terrible as the worst thing that could ever happen to us, death itself. And God ensured that that thing that is the worst suffering of all cannot touch you, cannot harm you, cannot come upon you because of what he did on the cross as our Savior. When you understand that, then you will be able to not only retain, but even to recover a childlike faith. Because as you understand more of this gospel, it'll be so clear to you that God is obviously real because of the tremendous love that you've experienced by your understanding of the gospel. And because of this tremendous love of God, you're gonna want nothing but God to where the only thing that you genuinely care about is just having God himself, you see? This is how we have childlike faith. This is how we're able to retain our belief in God in a world that is so hard and so broken and so lost. And so here's my question to you, friend. Do you have childlike faith? Do you recognize your need for childlike faith? I hope and pray that you do. Let us pray. Father, now as we consider what it means to have childlike faith, we pray now that we would apply it into our hearts and our minds, 
so that we will be prepared for whatever sorrows and setbacks, whatever trials and tribulations that we must face, so that we may come out of it not as people who have no faith, but instead have robust, strong, childlike faith. A faith that obviously recognizes that you're real, a faith that genuinely wants you for you and not for anything else. Help us now, especially during these difficult times. We pray that you will hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.